Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Michael Fiorenza has a professional background that crosses multiple industries, allowing him the opportunity to consistently draw on technical experiences to guide his decision-making. By building high-performance teams and being an advocate for both change and professional development within an organization, Michael has enjoyed success in the commercial construction industry while making a difference in people's lives and changing city skylines. Having had the fortune of working alongside and learning from prominent mentors and tradesmen during his career, Michael has been able to develop and run successful construction companies as both part of a management team consultant and an owner entrepreneur. Michael joined Bundren Painting and Drywall based in Houston, Texas in 2011 and has been COO since 2018. Bundren Painting and Drywall has been a fixture in the Houston construction industry since 1984 and has installed finishes on high profile projects throughout the city and region. Michael is also a member of the COO Alliance and Michael, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thank you very much, and my pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. So um, why don't you give us a little bit of background and tell us a little bit about what Bundren does and how you guys are maybe different from um, you know, what the typical people in the industry are doing. We're a commercial painting, framing, drywall contractor in Houston. There's, there's quite a lot of us, but we primarily work on large-scale projects. Um, we a good project as an example is Reliance Stadium in Houston. Uh, wow. So we're bigger, bigger projects, hospitals, vertical high rise. And we have some competition here in Houston that we have some, there are some very good trades people here in Houston, but Houston's also a very busy city. Uh, it's, we're always looking for some place and some way to set ourselves apart. Now, are you bidding for those contracts or are companies coming in and hiring you directly? How do those all work? So we have a combination of two and three, three ways if you, if you break into it. Uh, we do bid for projects and we have a bid service. And we've, since we've been around since 84, we have a longstanding relationship with most of the prominent contractors here in Houston. Mm. So we see most of the big projects and bid on them. So we have opportunities for sales coming through the door nonstop. In fact, more than we can bid on. Um, then we have our relationships that we capitalize on. And if we're out there with one of our longtime clients or even with a prospective new client, we can walk and help them out, deliver some value. And then we have just the off the wall ones that we get a phone call from nobody knows where and turn that into an opportunity as well. So when you deal with bids, it was interesting. Someone just asked me this on a call yesterday. I did a webinar on how to grow when it's slow. And someone asked me in this competitive environment right now, what do you do when people are selecting the lowest bid? And I was like, I don't know. But other than I, I tried, I said, I want to make some stuff up, but I didn't want to. And I'll tell you in a second what I suggested to them as this is what I would try. But I'd love to get your thoughts around that whole lowest bid environment. Is that a true <laughs> Is that, is that a fallacy? Is it a, a, a something that you have to live within? How do you guys talk about that? It is true. Um, it's how you manage it and how you, how you approach it is how you succeed. Uh, a lot of government and bond work will go lowest bid and then they have to qualify it. And that's just the way it works. Uh, we do not 
participate in a lot of that work. We mm -hmm. participate more in work with, client, with general contractors that can negotiate uh, those jobs. So while we have a history with a lot of these general contractors, they also know that we may not be the lowest price in the market. Um, mm. We're going to deliver that value and they, we have that confidence with them and they have that confidence with us that we've got some of the best trained teams and that you know, we're going to deliver them the value and the project on time like they're looking for. So they don't always really select the lowest bid, do they? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. So I used to be in the house painting industry, a very different one, but um, than, than you're in. We painted houses and some some multi-unit um, stuff. And I landed one bid that I saw actually in a newspaper, and it was a apartment complex, and it was three three-story apartment buildings. Um, I'd say probably fifty units each, and we were just painting the interior hallways and stairwells and railings and the outsides of the buildings. And um, you know, they said the lowest bid, lowest bid. And I was like, fuck, I can't win on lowest bid. Like I can never be lower than the pros. So I just decided to out market everybody and out brand everybody and out kind of, um, I just showed up and was really polite and happy and answered their questions and showed them more and sat and then said, can we go for coffee and I'll walk you through everything. And we went to a coffee shop together. I probably donated or not donated, but but dedicated maybe an extra hour and a half of time that I normally wouldn't have done on a quote. But I think that's what won the bid. I don't think it had anything to do with the price. I'm pretty sure we were more expensive, but I think the trust was high. Does that work? Is that kind of how you position in building your brand in this industry? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but it, it's also, yeah, it's an appearance and it's an image. Mm. Um, while we say we're developing and, and we're, while we say we're, we're delivering value, um, that goes above and beyond the dollar signs. It goes, you know, our project management team is there. Our estimating team is there. We're communicating on a consistent basis with clients and prospective clients as well. Um, we will also get out there and walk. The owner of the company and myself have no problems getting out there, shaking hands and walking these jobs ourselves mm. because that's what it takes to close a deal sometimes. How many employees do you guys have? Right now, we have 136 employees. So 136, and, and these are, are these pretty good long-term tradesmen as well that are working with you, or is there turnover? We do have turnover. However, we do have quite a few tradesmen that have been with us 17, 18, and 19 years. Mm. Why, why did they stay? Just the, the job security, and they know the guys, and they know there's consistent work, and they get to just... Job security, uh, uh, um, it's, it's a funny industry um, when, you're, when you're trying to manage a, a, an hourly rate tradesman, there's, there's issues and concerns. You're always fluctuating because of the market. Uh, what, our longer term employees have been here because they've, you know, this, has been, this is a family business that has, I don't want to say become more corporate, but we've definitively become more professional over the last five years. So we've upped the game. In fact, we've, we've developed a training program for our field as well. So we've classified and trained our, our, our guys. Uh, we've partnered with our vendors to lower the cost of the training. Uh, we've, we basically have a career path for our field now. So mm. we've raised the bar, if you would. Yeah. And, and that allows us to recruit and retain some better employees. Where do you recruit them from? Where do you find them? <sighs> Most of them actually come from word of mouth. Um, 
our employees know other employees, no, no other people. The, sure. constru- the construction industry in Houston is actually a lot smaller of a market than, than people think. Um, you know, we have some foremen that know painters from 10 years sure. ago, or 12 years ago, and hey, they yeah. need a job and, yeah. you know, let's bring them on. Yeah, yeah. And the word of mouth. And as long as they're strong and your culture is strong. So do you guys do anything different than the typical construction company might do? Do you do you adopt some of those like the, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area technology company um, culture things? Do you bring any of that into the trades? Well, all of our, our our software, actually, all of our our foremen are out in the field with iPads. So okay. we've, we've transitioned a lot of our software, a lot of our paperwork into a into a digital platform okay. to help streamline in the field as well as the office. In the old days, you know, we'd get blueprints and you'd print out blueprints and send them to the field, and then you had to have one set on the field and one set for your supervisor or one set for the office. And nowadays, everything is is on the computer in one of six different programs. So it's easier for us to get information back and forth and have, an, have a conversation and information flow between the field and, and the office, as well as our clients. We, we can respond a lot faster not having to do. So we've adopted a lot of technology. Um, with that comes training a lot of people that have never utilized technology in the field. And our industry is definitely changing where it's becoming more and more technologically driven. How about in terms of, that's interesting that you're, you are driving on the technology side. How about on the, um, just on the employee engagement side and the employee culture side, do you do anything there that is different from, you know, what might be perceived in the trades? We're, we're part of an association. Uh, actually, this is, this is, this may, may segue in a little bit here, but we're part yeah. of an association Years ago, Craig and I sat in, this, in the conference room and we were trying to determine how do we estimate project management and produce work the same way across the company? Because, you know, this, a foreman A has one sure. way of doing things, foreman B has another way of doing things. And the old mantra is as long as you get from A to B, I don't care how you get there. Yeah. It's hard to estimate that Very. because foreman A is producing at one rate and foreman B is producing at a different rate and foreman C is entirely off the grid. So, you know, we decided we were going to try to align everything and actually C3 here in Houston, the construction career collaborative uh, got involved and it's, it's about training and it's about culture and it's about, you know, developing and, and investing in your people. So we were running parallel with that as we got involved with C3 and we kind of merged the two together. So, we have an assessment program. We have a training program. Uh, we also are utilizing a mentorship program. So in order to move up through the ranks of tradesmen, you have to be mentoring somebody below you and mm-hmm. you have to be being mentored by somebody above you in one of the positions above you. And there's a sign off process for that. So there's a timeline and there's with the sign off process, we're, we're starting to see some good results and it, it's a, it's a rollout. This is only about two years old now. So it's, it's been, we've hit all the, all the speed bumps at once, if you would. And are you guys, are you guys unionized or just a normal yeah. shop? We are not union. We are, we are how, open shop down here. How do you avoid the unions or, or have you had to avoid them just because your culture is strong enough? Uh, culture's strong enough, but Houston's also not a very big union town. Okay. Um, Texas is Texas has. I, I come from the Northeast, so you know I, I was a union carpenter when I when I right. 
I started and, and I came up through the union as well. But Texas is not a union is, is not a union organization down here. Um, right. I, it's hard for them to compete because really our margins are good, but the, the cost of construction in Houston is low. Why is that? There's just so much of it going on. <laughs> really? um, yeah, they, they estimated a couple of years ago. I, I, we sat in a, we sat in a, a seminar with a couple uh, econ, uh, economists and they had told us that if you put a dome over Houston and didn't let anybody in or out, you would still have to build infrastructure, housing, and schools for the next eight years to keep up with population growth. Wow, crazy. So we, you can't drive through downtown Houston without seeing a tower crane up either. So yep. we're still booming. We're still building. And Houston's diversified out of uh, all oil and natural gas now after the last couple crashes. They've diversified more into tech and more into other industries. So, oh, it has. Yes. Question for you. you. So you weren't there in 2009. Were you in, this, in the industry in 2009? Yes, I was. I was in I was in New Jersey and working in New Jersey and New York. The the economic collapse basically took us out. Yeah. So, do you think we're going to have that similar kind of economic collapse right now in the construction space? Or are we going to be able to avoid that because it's not tied to housing and construction as much? Or what's your <laughs> glimpse on that? I think it's going to depend on the banks. Mm -hmm. If the banks. Right now, with the backstops in place, I think that we're going to be okay because it no. isn't right now. It's not a financial crisis. It, it is a, a fact that everything is shut down. Um, we're running because we're essential, so we're we're still building, but we're taking all the precautions that we can. Uh, we're forecasting this out. Uh, I, I know we we were on a call, a, a group call, a couple of days ago. And we discussed this. But one of the things we did was a, a 13 week rolling cash flow forecast. Yeah. And forecasted if we lost 25% of our revenue, 50% of our revenue, 75% of our revenue, or if it went to zero, how long can we last? And we're also hoarding cash. Right now, we're still bidding on projects. We're still being awarded projects. We have a backlog and we have not heard of any of them being pulled or postponed. So right now, we're, we think we're in a lot better shape because the real estate market hasn't collapsed and the financial market hasn't collapsed. Right. Um, I, I can't tell you what's going to happen three weeks from now, but I, I feel pretty solid and safe that we have enough planning in place that we can navigate through it. Well, it was interesting when you were on that COO Alliance call a couple of days ago when you walked us through the rolling 13-week uh, forecast. I love that you did the three different scenarios of the down 25, down 15, down 75% really, really smart to have that kind of aggressive what ifs in place so that you can, you know, respond versus react, right? If all of a sudden the shit hits the fan, you're like, well, we had that plan. Here's how we execute. Um, what would be, you know, we also did on that call a quick little survey. And, and I think the, the, the kind of average member felt like we were going to be until we said that, that things would be back to normal when planes were flying around the United States and restaurants were open. That was kind of the bar that I set. And yes. uh, the average member seemed to feel that would be July or August. Okay. Yeah. What do you think uh, is, uh, what was your gut? My gut is fourth quarter. I think, yeah. I don't think Even, there's going to be as sharp of a recovery as, as we expect. Cause it, it's, you know, it, it's still all new information coming out. 
So, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a sharp recovery. I think I think restaurants and planes will go back in the, maybe in July or August, but I think we're going to be in an economic recession, depression for two to three years. Yep. So my gut is it's the end of 2022 until we can start hitting the next bull run up. Yep, that may be the case. You, yeah, no, and so in those, what in your scenarios when you guys have had these discussions at your leadership team, and and having um, you know scenario planning for you know if worse. What kinds of things would you do to, if your revenue is down by 50%, what would you have to do? Well, very first thing we did, and I can't take, I have to, I have to process this, is I can't take all the credit for this because uh, uh, some of these ideas came from some of our mentors, our, our board of directors, and, and some of our uh, associates as well. So we've kind of hodgepodged our own little plan together. Sure. Um, first thing we did was we, we put a lockdown on discretionary spending already. Right. So we've locked down our, our accounts. We are researching everything. We've hoarded cash. We've protected that cash. Um, one of the things that is now prevalent is, is money is essentially cheap to finance. So it you have to weigh the balance of is it better to pay it in cash or is it better to hoard the cash and incur the debt short term? Uh, yeah. Because we still have revenue coming in. So we've dropped we've cut discretionary spending and it seems to have stabilized everything that we've done right now we're waiting for the next for lack of a better term we're waiting for the next year to drop um we will we've already capitalized on this opportunity to say okay let's in discretionary spending let's look at our field and look at our operations and you can pull discretionary spending out but if you're still wasting you know, three or three percent or two percent of your labor every day, uh, you're still spending a, a massive amount of money. So we went through the assessments and we looked at our bottom ten percent, and we said, okay, we're going to lay off our bottom ten percent. Uh, while it did not affect us immensely, I mean, you're you're at 136 people, you're talking 14 people. Um, right. It didn't affect up. us financially immensely, but it did catalyze a couple other changes and, and it got it got some stuff moving again. And it it shows our management team that you can make those cuts and still be comfortable. So there's also more room to cut or there's more room to improve other processes. Well, and it also shows, it sends a signal out to the team. It's almost like a signal flare going off or a shot across the bow that it sends a signal out to the whole team. It's like, hey guys, the weak get cut, the strong we keep, right? Wow, this is the real deal. And and it kind of gets everyone to step their game up a little bit. You mentioned earlier that you're from the Northeast, that mm -hmm. I'm sure you grew up in the hockey world then. So you watched some hockey. And, yes. um, you know, when a hockey team loses a player for a penalty and all of a sudden they're playing shorthanded, it's incredible to watch them score goals. They yes. got one less guy on the ice and they often score a goal because it's kind of like they're more focused and there's no one else getting in the way and they just, they, they kind of get the shit done. I've often thought that there's a few teams that could play better shorthanded than with full men on the ice. So um, I also really like that you're hoarding cash because there's that old adage that cash is king in a recessionary market. You know, Warren Buffett, Apple, and Google were all sitting on their highest position on cash in their balance sheets in November and December. They knew we were coming into something and they were, they were starting to prepare for it a year ago in building up cash. So I think you're doing some really, really smart decisions on using debt to pay for things and continue to build up cash right now. I think it's very, very smart to do that. Well, thank you. How have you, or, or go back to when you joined, you've been with the company now for about nine or 10 years. 
what was it about um, Bunderden that, that you liked when you joined the company? What was it that drew you in? And did you move to Houston for the role? I did not move to Houston for the role. Um, we, it, in 2008 and 2009, the construction market tanked in the Northeast. And um, being involved in a couple big projects, as soon as they were done, there was, there was nothing to do. Um, at that point, I had uh, a four-year-old son. My son was four years old. My, my wife was at the house. And uh, I got an opportunity to come take over a failed project down here in Houston and made the move. I was actually traveling back and forth three weeks down here, one week at home. We found out we were pregnant with number two. And uh, that kind of is the catalyst for the move because there's no way. I'm a minimum of eight to 10 hours away should something go wrong. So we moved down here officially and finished off the projects. I actually when it started a business in a partnership with the owner of that project um, had three partners besides myself and that had done very well for about a year and partners are dispersing and ones in the Northeast and ones in the, you know, Southwest and ones in Florida. And it's like, okay, I'm running this company, splitting it four ways. I, I think we've got to do something better. Um, the opportunity came up with Craig because Craig was branching out into a new area of construction from him, actually a roofing company. Um, he had been chased by Sherwin Williams to do a fluid applied roofing. Um, mm. What drew me to it was, it was a challenge. It was, I get to start from scratch here. And I basically had carte blanche. Um, mm. You know, it was, it was, Hey, let's go do this and let's make it happen. And, and, and how many employees were there at that point? Yeah. Um, it was fluctuating in between. There was seven, seven office employees um, and probably around 50 or 60 uh, field employees. Uh, okay. We started the, the roofing side and branched out with all subcontractor work. Um, and we took it from basically 35000 a year to 3.5 in revenue in two years. So we're, we're on an accelerated growth pattern. Uh, industry changed down here. The niche market we were in kind of came apart. So when we made an assessment to go back to our bread and butter, which was painting, uh, commercial painting, it was, we hibernated the company and then we've been entirely laser, laser focused on developing this company uh, and, and taking it to the next level. Interesting. Smart. Um, Talk to me about the the growth that you went through then, like adding 100 employees over the last eight, nine years. What has had to change in the organization as you've done that? We've had to get better. Uh, we've had to train better people. We, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a constant student. I, I read a lot. I'm listening to audio books. I'm, I'm constantly learning. Uh, the owner, Craig, is, is, is the same way. Um, we went through some tra uh, some leadership classes. We hired some consultants. Uh, we got involved with disc profiles, and you start learning about psychology and people and development. Hiring tradesmen is one thing, but if you want to be something besides a tradesman, if you want to stand out from the crowd, then you, you need to be doing you need to be doing something more than just slapping paint on a wall. You need to be investing in your people. You need to be developing them. You need to be creating smart and genius teams that think outside the box. Uh, you need to, you know, have almost autonomous people 
where your management team doesn't have to micromanage and doesn't have to get on top of everything because mm. you know that it's running as a well-oiled machine. Interesting. How about yourself? How about how have you had to change as the organization has grown? I mean, you come into the organization kind of um, well, a little younger and a younger family and probably super keen and green. How have you had to adapt and change as you've scaled? I had to learn a lot of patience. <laughs> um, quite, quite honestly, I, I'm, uh, I'm the, in my my personal profile my my disc profile I'm a very high DC so okay. I'm I'm analytical but I drive hard and mm. and I'll get it done I'll put I have one of the hardest things that I have had to learn over the last five years is I can't put my fingers in everything I've got to step back and I've got to let people experience it and I've got to let my teammates and and my 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 management team fail. We got to minimize their failure, you know, minimize the the impact. But they've got to go through the same process as well, and, and it's hard saying, you know, I, I want to fix it, but I can't. I've got to let, I've got to develop them and bring them to the next level, and that that is the hardest thing that I still continuously work on, and and I think it'll always be. I think it'll always be that way. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, how about for you and um, oh, I forget his name now, Craig. Craig. You and Craig, how have you had to adapt and work with each other over the last couple of years? How have you, have you had to change your styles at all in working together? We've had to we've had to to learn how to recommunicate. Let's let's um, I guess that's a good explanation. We obviously stress times get high and, and things go up, but it's never personal. We never have a, a personal issue with each other. It's always business. Sure. Um, we we've had to learn to recommunicate over a couple issues. Um, which has made us stronger as a as a what, management team. What do you um, mean by that? What do you mean by recommunicate? Give me an example. Um, you know, I want to say pushing boundaries. So we in, unintentionally um, during times of stress are trying to make progress. You know, people we we both get frustrated about progress not being there, or, or you know, this issue isn't being handled the way we we thought it was going to. And you know, there's tension, and it's it's private tension. You know, there, there, there's been some serious conversations about that, but it's made our relationship better. If you want my simple take on it, yep. the fact that we've had to learn to communicate at a deeper level every time we grow. So we both grow personally and we're both growing professionally through this journey. And you hit that spot where it, it's tough to get through. You've hit that next ceiling that you've got to bust through and what's what's your ceiling what are you trying to bust through now i'm trying to bust through getting my personal ceiling my personal ceiling is i'm trying to get through this crisis that we're dealing with um relatively unscathed um i'm trying to be able to sleep at night because we're having to make some tough decisions that affect a lot of people's lives um but i'm also reaching back and touching base with some of my mentors and my, my coaches. Um, you, you know, I, once again, I have to learn to have a little bit more patience and let something play out longer to see it develop and then see how the management team is working. I love that you're reaching out to mentors and coaches. You've also been a member of the CO Alliance for a year. I think you're going on to your second year now with us. Can you share with us, um, Let's start with the coaches and mentors first. What are one or two specific things that they've worked with you on that you've grown from? Um, 
so one of my coaches, Linda, she, she's a business and streamlining result uh, coach. And actually her programs are uh, getting results through others. Um, so it's more of a management and streamlining uh, a program that she, she does through some of the associations here in Houston. Okay. Um, after going through that, I, we, we brought her in house to train our whole team. Um, she is probably the most blunt person that I've ever dealt with. Um, she will tell me straight to my face if I'm screwing up and if she thinks that, uh, uh, I've made a mistake. And what I've learned is there's a lot of times when I don't see the mistake I make until somebody calls it. So I've had to grow and learn to, to accept the fact that that mistake's been called out and not that it's not that it's uh, malicious, but it's, Hey, you know, you didn't need to. You didn't need to come down that hard on, on that person or, <laughs> hey, you didn't see the work that was going on behind the scenes and maybe that wasn't a good communication of it. So yeah. Linda has made me grow in that way and accept a lot more uh, uh, frontal communication, if you would. Um, and then I have another, I actually have a Vistage, uh, Vistage coach as well, um, Gotti, who is fantastic. He's a, he's, he's a great guy. And he's, he's asked me some questions that have really made me stop and think and change the way I approach talking to people. Like what? Give me an example of one. Um, I'm, I'm very blunt. I'm, I'm, I'm to the point. I'm very blunt and I can come off as very cold. Mm. Um, I also come, can, uh, I can acknowledge that I, I have an issue with my communicating, being able to relay empathy because I'm very fast. <laughs> very fast talking, very fast thinking. And, and I'm yeah. just, I'm out and I'm blunt. Um, so I've, I've had right? to focus more on the, the empathy and communication side. When, on your disc profile, what, what was your number on D? Do you remember? Uh, an eight. eight. Yeah, that was 98% D, 74% I. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's too high. Yeah, um, exactly. Do you feel, so I'm curious on the, on the being blunt and the, the, um, do you think that's a little bit of the Italian Northeast? Or... <laughs> it might be, it might be to tell you the truth, that that could be a cultural upbringing thing. Yes. Yeah. Like I, I'm being honest, right? Like I grew up in a city that was probably 50% Italian, 30% French laborers and, um, Italians just fucking tell you like it is. And then they're not trying to hurt your feelings. They're just, they don't have time to like, like, dude, you sucked at this. Like, yeah. you <laughs> we did. don't mean anything bad by it. No, you yeah. just did. You sucked at that. Like, work harder. And, and yeah. you know, um, but then do you feel bad afterwards when you've hurt somebody? Like, does it actually hurt you inside that you've hurt someone? Or do you even? Absolutely. I'm very yeah. introspective about that. Because the last thing that I want to do is is hurt somebody or create a situation unintentionally. Yeah. Um, and especially, so that's a good so coming from the Northeast and very brunt, very brash, very <clears throat> up front, and then coming down to Houston where things move a little bit slower and people are more mm -hmm. thoughtful and they're talking, you know, that's a, that's a big change that people underestimate and, and conducting business Huge across change. state lines as well. Huge so, Yeah, I, I think that's actually what probably is making you such a strong leader is that you are very blunt and to the point, but you actually do have the human introspection side that you feel bad if you've hurt someone and you can connect with them emotionally. And yourself aware enough to want to work on it as well which i think a lot the fact that you're actually like as an example have a mentor linda that you have a vistage coach and that you're investing that's probably 10 or so grand a year you're investing twenty thousand a year in the co alliance you're showing up to group calls like you're definitely engaged and working on yourself and that's a huge huge thing 
Um, and, and you don't find a lot of leaders that are doing that. How have you rationalized when you get the feedback that you suck at something or you need to improve at something? How does that, how do you not let that wear you down or beat you down? I've grown. I want to say I've grown a lot. So I, while I will internalize it and when I default back to more of an analytical side, Mm. I'll take it apart and I'll let it, uh, you know, I've had in the, in the past, I've let it eat at me. So um, I've learned to let that go and relax and, and say, okay, let's write it down, get it on paper and then see it. And once I can see it, I can, I can address it. Cause you don't find a lot of CEOs that are heavy on praising people. CEOs tend to be entrepreneurs tend to be very focused on the horizon. will be happy when they get there. Um, they don't, they're not trying to be critical, but they definitely point out all of the problems and frustrations and things that need to be fixed. Yes. And for, for humans, we, we need, we often need some praise. So where do you get your praise from? Where do you feel good to counter out the growth? And I think it's great that you're actually are okay. like Ray Kroc from McDonald's said, when you're green, you're growing, when you're ripe, you're rotting. So we always have to right. get better. You're clearly good at getting that feedback and working on yourself. Where do you get the praise from to um, have that partially feed you? Um, obviously from my coaches, they see, they see improvement. Um, as we get better communicating, uh, as Craig and I consistently work on our communication to get better communicating, um, I see the praise from him. And in the same sense, I, I shell out a lot. Did you, say, did you say you see the praise from him? I do. He, 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 you can see his smile. You can see when, when he's, he's, wow, I, I didn't expect you to have that to this level or I didn't uh. expect you guys to have your, your team ready to rock. So, uh, you know, you can, you can see it, it you can see it in face to face interactions. Uh, it's taken a while to learn to look for it. Yeah. But now that you, now that you, uh, I've learned to look for uh, subtle clues like that, uh, I feel personally a lot better because right. I see it more in my daily interactions. I'd really like for you to share that at our next CEO Alliance event that you're at as well. If you can make a note to do that, like please, it's a really, it's a subtle point that I don't know if I've ever heard a COO mention it before, but to look for those cues of where the praise is there, because we know that they're not really going to give it. So, but when we can find it, um, it's usually there. Absolutely. That's a really interesting point. That's a huge, did you learn that from somebody? Was that like a mentor or did you just come on that on your own? That, it, it was one of those realization moments Damn, where, you, are smart. you know, you, you, you kind of, and I can't, I can't pinpoint a single time, but once you start noticing stuff like that, you see it all over the place. That's a really, it's a really interesting point, Michael. I'm going to, um, I'm even going to do a little Facebook live on that. I'm going to give you credit on it, but thank you. Um, what, what do we, what would you call that? Uh, I just, Literally, so you know, I, when I'm like looking CEO for praise signals, sure, you could you could call it that, it, it, but it's not just there. It, it it's with all of your interactions. I mean, if you really want to get down to it, if you can communicate at a better level with your team, or with mm. you know, and I've I've consciously made a point to also express those expressions where I'll smile and I'll nod and I'll, you know, give a high five or I make sure to come in and say good morning to everybody and ask them how they're doing, how their kids are doing, how's, you know, how's life, um, you know, get involved. And, and if you're active in portraying the praise, you, you, you your team is going to be a lot more responsive. I, 
we've, we're going through some tough times. We've got one heck of a management team put together that are, that are performing in the remote world as like flipping of a switch and we're having zoom calls and, and, you know, you can, you can, you can still have the same impact on your team or on your employees or with your, with your CEO uh, via, via webcam. Mm. I like that you actually said that it's something you have to do kind of all the time. And it almost made me think of, I forget who said it or where I heard it, but it's like, you need to fall in love with yourself and you need to like, if, if you're waiting for someone else to feed you, you'll never be happy. And I think that's kind of what you've identified as a leader as well as you can't wait for the CEO to give you praise. You've got to notice those signals. You've also got to praise yourself. Um, how are you at, at leading your people? Do you have any anything that with your direct reports that you do that that anybody might want to learn from? I do a weekly uh, fifteen minute one on one. I I block out um, I block out thirty minutes because it always runs over fifteen. Um, mm-hmm. I I actually learned from from uh, uh, Griff on one of your previous broadcasts. Uh, I liked his traffic light mentality of uh, red light, yellow light, green light. What, what, what uh, I want Griff, you to Griff Long from Orange Theory. Yes. Yep. Um, what I what I want you to stop doing, what I want you to think about, and what I want you to keep doing, mm. and that format in a quick upfront meeting is five minutes. It's in, it's out, and then the rest of that meeting becomes really powerful because your team is like, okay, I was doing this because of this, but I realized that I can change to this now, and, and it, having the trust in them as well is is huge. Um, I like the one-on-ones. We, we we have multiple meetings a week, and you know we're we're formatted with them. We know what we're doing when we go in, when we go out. Uh, we we have plenty of communication on the management team through the office. Um, so we're I'm I'm proud of them because we're we're rocking and rolling. They're they're not skipping a beat. Nothing nothing has thrown a wrench in their works through this through this whole process. Um, that 15 minute one-on-one gives them a chance to vent. Yep. It gives them a chance to say, "Hey, I'm I'm really having problems with this because that's not going to happen in a group meeting. It, it, they need the opportunity to vent out and say, "Hey, I or even bring up suggestions of I don't like this and I can make it better." Um, that 15 minute one on one with my direct reports is probably the most important 15 minutes I spend with them. Michael, you're a really solid leader. the The fact that you actually even understand that that 15 minute meeting is for them to vent, for them to share, for them to talk, for them to ask for help. It's not for the leader to follow up and project manage everybody. It's 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 really for them. Absolutely. Most people don't. Most leaders just don't get it. They they really are there trying to manage people and hold them accountable instead of being there to support them and remove obstacles for them and just listen to them. That's your stuff. Thank All right, you. man. Final, final question. If we were to go back to the 22-year-old Italian northern, northeastern United States kid kind of finishing college or getting ready to go off into his career, what word of advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true now but you didn't know when you were 21 or 22? Breathe a little bit more. Um, <laughs> what was that, breathe? Breathe a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> the, don't, you know, the, don't rush into everything. Um, there, there's, there, there's, a, there's always time for uh, in, in introspect, and there's always time to to view it from different angles. You don't have to rush into everything. That's amazing. 
Michael Fiorenza, the COO for Bundgren Painting and Drywall in Houston. Really appreciate you sharing with us. Glad that you remember the CO Alliance and some great nuggets in there today. It was some, some amazing stuff. I was taking notes for myself that I can pass on to my clients. So thanks very much for sharing with us today. Thank you. It was a blast. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.